Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, does the Senate still work? To answer that question, we have Martin Gold, a partner with Capital Council LLC, a government relations firm in Washington, D.C. Marty spent many years in the U.S. Senate, working for individual senators, committees, and a majority leader. He also is the author of the book, Senate Procedure and Practice which explains how the chamber operates. So Marty has both an inside view of the Senate and he has a long view of it, which is why I wanted to have him on the program to answer the question, does the Senate still work? Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Kevin. The subject of this episode is, does the Senate still work? So it occurs to me that to answer that question, it might be helpful if I first asked you, well, what does a working Senate look like? Well, a working Senate is a Senate that is mindful of its constitutional responsibilities, which it has many. Some powers expressly uh, stated in the Constitution, like the power over nominations or the power over treaties, which are unicameral powers power about uh, to, to run impeachment trials. That's another unicameral power. And then um, a number of other powers that are obviously exercised on a bicameral basis. But I think if you go beyond the text of the Constitution itself, consider the constitutional purpose of the Senate, uh, it is to slow things down, to be a more deliberative body. James Madison talked uh, about uh, in the Federalist Papers about the Senate being a necessary fence against the passions of the House of Representatives. Uh, The rules and the precedents of the House and the mechanisms of the House allow the House to move very quickly when the majority party wants to move quickly. And uh, the minority has very little, if anything, to say about it. And it can push things through on a fairly instantaneous basis. It's a legislative juggernaut. The purpose of the Senate is to be the necessary fence against that, to slow things down, to create a more deliberative process. And when you get beyond the stated powers of the Senate and the Constitution and look also to the purpose of why we have a bicameral legislature, I think the Senate, in fact, does uh, serve that function quite well. It doesn't serve it in exactly the same way as it may have served it years ago. Senates do change. Uh, on the basis not only of the people who are serving in the body, but also on the national mood of the country. When people talk about polarization in the Senate, uh, it has to be remembered that the Senate is a political institution, and that the polarization in the Senate reflects the polarization of the American people. If the Senate were really out of step with the American people, query how many of those senators would remain senators, as the public thought that somehow or other Uh, They really weren't being appropriately represented in the place. So how the Senate goes about serving the constitutional functions, both formal and informal, 
is different, perhaps, than it may have been in the past, but nevertheless, I still think it is the necessary fence uh, in, the, uh, in the great constitutional structure we have. I want to quote something uh, from the start of your book, where you say, or write, if one were to encapsulate the difference between House and Senate procedure in nine words, they would be, quote, dominance of the offense versus dominance of the defense, end quote. I think it's useful for our listeners to get a sense of, like, how is the Senate different from the House? Okay, they play more defense over there. They are the fence you were talking about. Why? Why does it work that way? Well, I think I should just begin answering this by explaining what that terminology means. Because I've used it for years and years, and it uh, remains true. I think if they got rid of the filibuster in the Senate, it might not be so true, but it's true now, anyhow. The House is an institution, as it, particularly as that has evolved over American history, where the rules and the precedents of the institution and the mechanisms of the institution, such as the House Rules Committee, all serve to enhance majority party power and uh, mean, in effect, that a majority that can hang together, particularly on procedural questions, can not only set up the terms for debate and consideration in the House, but can really push things through on a very rapid basis without, again, much accord being given to uh, minority perspectives or viewpoints. The Senate that's dominance of the offense, that's for sure. The Senate is exactly the opposite. The rules of the Senate and the precedence of the Senate and the absence of mechanisms such as a rules committee all serve to enhance the power of minority parties and minority coalitions and individual senators. So it is a place where the defense uh, really uh, can uh, dominate the institution. It isn't to say that the defense can just stop anything it wants to. Uh, it is to say that things take longer to get through. Sometimes they can be stopped, and sometimes the defense can use its power to modify the procedures by which things will be considered. But the bottom line of it is, uh, not only is the Senate different from the House in the sense of the length of terms of the members, the way people are uh, have two per state equality of membership as opposed to proportionality, or the just general size of the body. Not only is it different in those ways, obvious ways, but it is also different in terms of how it exercises its power under the Constitution of self-governance. It, it's one of the things in the Constitution that is tended people tend to overlook. But the framers of the Constitution did not write the rules of the Senate, nor did they write the rules of the House of Representatives. They wrote no rules at all. They, however, gave both senators and representatives the power to govern themselves, however they saw fit. And so it can be argued over, that over the course of time, the rules that have developed in the House serve the constitutional purposes that the House is supposed to serve and that the rules of the Senate, as they have evolved over time, serve the constitutional purposes of uh, the Senate. Again, the framers did not arrange for those things. Uh, senators could have structured rules however they wanted to structure them. Same with representatives. But the evolution of, over time, I think, does, in fact, uh, serve 
the broad constitutional purposes that you have in a bicameral legislature. Otherwise, you could just have a unicameral legislature. Since you mentioned rules, I figure I want to just drill down a little bit more on this. Every two years, we have elections and we get a new Congress. As part of that, the House of Representatives will review its rules and you'll vote to alter them. And this is typically a partisan exercise where, you know, whichever party's got the most people, they're the ones who get to uh, rewrite the rules. Senate doesn't work that way, does it? Senate does not, because 100% of the House of Representatives is freshly elected every two years. Uh, therefore, the rules of one Congress do not carry over to the next Congress. There is, I, I should say, substantial similarity in the rules of one Congress and the rules of the next, the rules of the Pelosi Congress, you know, and the rules of the present Congress. Uh, there is substantial similarity, but not identity, because the Republicans, when they came in, and it was a highly uh, publicized uh, rules controversy wrapped around the election of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, uh, did make some changes uh, to the last set of rules that Pelosi had had, as Pelosi and the Democrats made changes uh, to the uh, Ryan rules that preceded them. So while there is vast similarity, there are also important differences. The Senate, however, is a continuing body. Two-thirds of the senators continue over from one election to the next. It is supposed to be that way. Uh, you could have otherwise had the framers elect the entire Senate all at once. But the framers divided the Senate into three classes, making sure there was always a quorum of the Senate present, so that if you replaced every single senator who was up for election in a particular election cycle, you would still have stability in the chamber. And because of that, the rules of the Senate do carry over from one Congress to the next. Uh, they are sometimes changed. But uh, when Mitch McConnell was the majority leader, for example, there was not a single time in his tenure as leader where he proposed a rules change. And Chuck Schumer has been the leader now going on three years, right? He hasn't made changes either. Uh, the last time they formally amended the Senate rules was in 2013. Here's another thing to note. In the House, and you, you alluded to this, but in the House, what the minority thinks about the rules change is irrelevant because the majority will just pass the change it wants to pass. In the Senate, it only takes a majority of senators voting to change the rules. However, there is a special requirement to end debate on a rules change. We're talking about formal amendments to the rules. There's a, a special requirement that says you've got to have a two-thirds vote to invoke cloture and end debate on a rules change. So what does it mean? It means that if you're going to get an amendment to the rules of the Senate, the majority cannot steam the majority cannot steamroll the minority. They're going to have consensus within the minority. Last time we had a rules change in the Senate, I, I think the vote was something like 86 to 9 for the rules change. So what does it mean? What's it show? It shows that when Senator Reid, who was then the majority leader, sought the change, he had to negotiate the change with the minority and gain consensus from the minority leadership. If they did not have consensus from the minority leadership, the vote wouldn't have been 86 to 9. There would have been a substantial amount of dissent, so much so that I doubt seriously they could have ended debate on the change. So, not only do the rules continue over in the Senate, 
but because of minority rights that exist in the Senate in ways that they do not exist in the House, the minority has something to say about the content of the rules change. Just to go a little bit further uh, for our listeners on this issue of rules and like how a chamber operates, if the Senate doesn't frequently change its rules, does it change other things about how it operates? Like, you know, a new, you have a switch in party control of the Senate. It goes from McConnell to Schumer. Do they have written agreements between the parties about how you know, committee resources will be divvied up or how other things will be done or... How do they? How do they? Sure. How do they coordinate? Well, they have organizing resolutions at the beginning of the Congress. How many members are going to serve on what committees? What's the ratio of minority to majority membership on the committee? What about the resources of the committee? We we just had a situation in the last Congress that was quite uncommon, with the fifty-fifty Senate, where committee resources were divided absolutely evenly. Normally, uh, two-thirds was versus one-third division on the uh, staff that can be, for example, determined to be partisan staff as opposed to a purely administrative staff, things of that sort. Uh, so they have a negotiation that gives you an agreement on organizing resolutions and when those ratios are agreed to uh, and uh, then the members are assigned, that's all part of a, of a, of a big negotiation. So that is... Um, a normal thing. It happens every two years. But I, I thought, Kevin, that you might be going someplace else with that question. So if you will permit me to answer the question you didn't ask, I'm going to say to you, we've talked here about formal amendments to the standing rules, yet procedures do change. And they're not always changing by formal amendments to the standing rules. So if you think about it this way, the Constitution gives the Senate, like the House, the power of self-governance. How do you manifest that power? Well, the rules of the chamber are one manifestation of that power. You set up rules to govern yourself. Unanimous consent agreements, which they enter into all the time in the Senate, are another manifestation of that rulemaking power. Expedited procedure laws, like the Congressional Budget Act, that provides a process for considering budget resolutions and budget reconciliation bills, those expedited procedure laws are another example of, of the rulemaking power. And a fourth example, and quite important, is precedence. Precedence of the chamber. Now, precedents most often interpret language in the rules, give texture to that language. However, sometimes precedents will outright contradict the rules. And some will say, well, how can a precedent contradict a rule? Because the precedent, like the rule, is an exercise of the rulemaking power. Those exercises stand on equal footing. The latest exercise in time is the one that prevails. So, for example, the Senate rules say, Senate Rule 22 says, that to end debate to a normal cloture motion, not on a rules change, but a normal cloture motion, on a nomination, take 60 votes. But because of precedents that were set for every nominee except for the Supreme Court in 2013, and precedents set in 2017 on the Supreme Court, 
it only takes a majority of senators voting, not 60. The rule still says 60. The precedent contradicts the rule. The rule was never amended formally, but the precedent is what governs because the precedent of 2013 or 2017 is later in time than the rule of 1975. So when we talk about how the Senate governs itself, those examples of those precedents were not an example like the one I gave of bicameral negotiation and agreement. They were examples of the majority party at the moment pressing down, or maybe you could say oppressing, the minority of the moment. So in the first case in 2013, it was done by the Democratic majority. And in 2017, it was done by a Republican majority. So you're in this kind of rough position. You have a set of rules that people can and should be expected to live by. But it is also correct that there is not a rule that you can write that will withstand the will of a willful majority to write a precedent that could contradict that rule. Therefore, we come to the great unwritten rule, which is the rule of self-restraint. Any majority has the power to contradict anything. Past rules, precedents, anything. But whether they can do it and whether they should do it are two separate questions. And the great question for Senate governance now, and I think I think going forward, is the degree to which self-restraint will triumph over the temptation to rearrange the rules to to serve your immediate political purposes. Well, that very nicely sets up my next question, which really speaks to the issue of the episode uh, in a straightforward way, which is the Senate has various constitutional responsibilities, such as considering treaties and nominations and a whole lot more. How well is the Senate performing these responsibilities today? Is it doing better or worse than it did when you first worked in the Senate? Well, let me say this. When I first worked in the Senate, now we're going back over 50 years, because I started working there uh, in 1972 for a five-term senator from Oregon, Mark Hatfield. The Senate of those days was a four-party Senate, even though you only had two parties. But it was a four-party Senate. If I can use the parlance of those days, the terminology of those days, You had liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans, and you had liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats. There were many fewer examples of party line voting. Instead, you had cross-party coalitions that often formed, and sometimes were quite interchangeable, moved around, you know, and so forth. Uh, as, As people executed their constitutional responsibilities, you didn't have the polarization, uh, you had, I think, uh, because uh, of the absence of that polarization, a greater degree of self-restraint. You didn't have the, the tribal atmosphere <laughs> driving uh, people to uh, creative uh, procedural solutions, you know, uh, that would serve uh, political ends. That was the Senate that I knew when I first started. This Senate is very much a two-party Senate, not a four-party Senate. Uh, You do have people on, let's say, the left end of the Republican caucus, and you have people on the right end of the Democratic, right? But nevertheless, there is a fundamental homogeneity 
in both caucuses. So the Senate obviously is not going to function exactly as it did. You're going to have uh, more party line voting than you had. Um, you're going to have a greater degree of aggressiveness, both in the exercise of minority rights and also in majority rights. Uh, just to give you an example, cloture motions used to be very uncommon. Maybe they'd be a dozen in a year, something like that. Now there's 20 times that in a Congress. You'll have uh, hundreds of cloture votes in a Congress. If you don't have unanimous consent, for example, if you don't have unanimous consent to move something, almost inevitably, it's going to require cloture, uh, 60 votes, in order to move something. So you not only see the 60-vote threshold imposed on um, cloture votes, you see it imposed on uh, unanimous consent agreements, for example, that say, well, we won't make you run through the cloture process, but we will make you adhere to the cloture threshold. If that amendment is going to pass, it's going to need 60 votes. If that bill is going to pass, it's going to need 60 votes. Cooperation in the modern Senate often takes that form. We'll let you avoid the cumbersome cloture process, and it is a cumbersome process. We'll avoid the cumbersome cloture process and allow you to move things more rapidly, but we're going to make sure that minority interests are attended to, are taken care of. And that is done by whichever party happens to be in the minority at the moment. So you could you could look at um, it being done today by a Republican minority, absolutely so. And you could go back a couple of years and see it done by a Democratic, a Democratic minority, making certain that the 60-vote threshold is observed so that their interests are taken care of. And what do I mean by their interests? Well, it could be their interests just to block legislation. That, that's one purpose, right? They couldn't get 60 votes, legislation blocked. But just as commonly, it's to leverage legislation. How do you, how do you make sure that you can put minority positions into legislation uh, unless the minority has the ability to halt that legislation unless their positions are given some attention. So both parties do that, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, I can simply tell you, uh, you an example from 2020 on both of these uses of, of the filibuster. After the George Floyd murder, uh, there was a lot of attention put on policing reform legislation. So Tim Scott of South Carolina proposed a policing reform bill. He was in a bipartisan negotiation with Cory Booker of New Jersey. But the negotiation did not lead to a productive end. And so uh, the Democrats filibustered the policing reform bill because they intended to kill the bill in the form that Scott had at least presented it. That's one use. Now in 2020, of course, we had the coronavirus pandemic. The first major piece of coronavirus relief legislation for a country that was hurting economically was the CARES Act. When that legislation was first drafted and we had a Republican majority, the Republicans pretty much wrote the bill. Senator McConnell moved to proceed to the bill. The Democrats filibustered the motion to proceed. He tried again. The Democrats filibustered the motion to proceed a second time. Did they want to kill coronavirus relief? Of course not. Their purpose was to ensure that Democratic priorities were given appropriate consideration in that bill. And so, after the second time cloture failed, 
where they had shown that they were willing to do this. Then the negotiation opened up, and the bill wound up passing 96 to nothing. 96 to nothing. So minority rights are exercised for all, all, all manner of, uh, of reasons, and this Senate is different from the Senate that I came to in 1972 in the sense that it has exercised much, much, much more uh, often. If the House has dominance of the offense, and it does, I would say that there were very few moments in American history when that was more true than now. And if the Senate has dominance of the defense, and it does, there are very few moments in American history when that is true more than it is now. That sets me up for my last question for you, uh, which is more of an observation that I want to put out there and get your take on, which is this new look Senate. There's this frequency with which the partisan split in the chamber is pretty narrow. 5248, 5446. I mean, you just don't have 60 to 40. Uh, those days seem to be past us. Maybe they'll come back. Who knows? That nearly even partisan split has brought with it senators who frequently position themselves as kind of uh, veto players, people who are willing to vote with the other party on kind of high salience topics. It also has brought with it partisan power plays on matters that are not directly about the Senate's constitutional responsibilities, like nominations and things. And we've seen this with the recent situation involving Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's on the Judiciary Committee and who is out ill and is asked to temporarily step down and have another Democrat put in her place. And it appears that uh, Senate Republicans are not inclined to make it procedurally easy uh, or even possible for her to be replaced. Are these two, two phenomena new in the Senate? Well, most surely the, the, the Feinstein case is new. That, that, that's for sure. Look, um, I thought when, when I saw what was developing on the Feinstein case, I was trying to find you know, other examples either cases where senators temporarily stepped aside or cases where uh, senators outright resigned and they, but mid-Congress or died mid-Congress and then their party filled the seat. Now, if their party is going to fill the seat, you need an organizing resolution that updates the original organizing resolution, whether you're filling the seat temporarily or you're filling the seat permanently. And um, I could not think of an example where such a resolution had been held up, uh, where one party just simply did not agree to accommodate the other party. I think if the, if the question is, is this sort of new territory? Yes, I think it is. Now, whether or not that will persist over a long time, I, I don't know. I think that um, I have heard, at least, that on the Judiciary Committee, uh, there is um, a controversy about something called blue slips and the senators objecting to judges that are being appointed in their state, you know, that at least on the district court level, we're not talking about appellate judges, we're talking about district court judges and so forth, and whether or not blue slips, meaning the senators' objections are going to be honored. Uh, so this may have something to do with uh, trying to be sure that uh, their objections are honored, okay, and then the process goes forward as opposed to just saying, if we don't allow the process to go forward, 
uh, the Democrats can't confirm any more judges because we'll just block all the judges. It could be something extreme, and it could be something that could be negotiated. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that the uh, that the leveraging is pretty not normal. Right. The House is a majoritarian chamber. Will the Senate remain an anti-majoritarian chamber? A lot of defense being played? I guess we shall see. Barty Gold, thank you for helping us better understand the Senate and whether it still works. And I appreciate the invitation to do so. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.